As we continue through the book of Hebrews, our scripture passage this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are not destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jeremy, let me, uh, let me pray before we uh, look at the passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, series through the book of Hebrews where we've been able to learn from this New Testament preacher and for seeing the, the wonder and the beauty of Jesus and how he has done everything better for our salvation. We pray that as we look at this passage Uh, that you would strengthen us through it, encourage us, warn us, whatever it is that we need to hear today. We thank you, you, the great counselor, the one who knows how to apply the word perfectly in each of our lives, no matter what point we're at in the journey of faith, uh, that today you will speak to us because you are the living God who speaks. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. During the uh, summer of 1741, the town of Suffield uh, near the Massachusetts-Connecticut border was undergoing a a tremendous spiritual revival. For example, on one particular Sunday, the 5th of July of that year, 95 people had come to faith in Jesus Christ in one afternoon. But the neighboring town of Enfield had not yet seen any similar evidence of revival, so a team of local pastors began a series of weekday services in that town. And on Wednesday afternoon of that same week, the 8th of July, 1741, a certain Jonathan Edwards was the appointed preacher. Edwards' style of preaching was such that it was said that uh, he would just stare uh, at the bell rope at the back of a meeting house. His, His view would never divert from there. But at the same time, there were few preachers who were able to command the attention of an audience like he was. 
Edward's sermon on that day was on Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says, their foot shall slip in due time. Before the sermon was done, as one historian recorded, there was great crying throughout the whole house. What must I do to be saved? What shall I do for Christ? That sermon, of course, is now better known by another name, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But contrary to the modern perception of that sermon, it, its theme was that at, that at the very at this very moment, God is indeed holding sinners in his hand, but actually with patience and forbearance delaying the awful destruction that our rebellion deserves. That the weight of our sin is so great that it, it, at any moment it would drag us downwards towards the abyss if God were, were to release his restraining hand. And therefore, for Edwards, being in the hands of God, and this is the point that is often missed, being in the hands of God means for the moment that you're being kept from the punishment you deserve. God, who is angry at some because of their rebellion against him, at the same time in his amazing forbearance is giving them an opportunity to turn, to change, to repent. His hand is keeping them from falling. He may be an angry God, but it is by his mercy that anyone is still in his hands. Well, granted, there may uh, was indeed a great, great dose of God's patience in Edward's sermon. The sermon was still ultimately a warning against hell and judgment. However, we need to understand that it was because of Edward's passionate love for God and his love for the people that he employed every tool at his disposal to plead with them to put their trust in Jesus. Edward was always more concerned with God's grace than with his wrath, but Edwards also knew how to give his people, as it were, a whiff of the sulfurs of hell so that they might more deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. And it was that intense concern that joins Edwards in heart with the preacher who wrote this sermon called Hebrews some 1,700 years earlier. As we've noted as we've been going through this book, Hebrews is essentially a sermon made up of a series of expositions and exhortations, but every so often the exhortations come in the form of a warning. And what's perhaps surprising to us is to note that the warnings of judgment in Hebrews are not to those who would consider themselves unbelievers or disinterested in the church, but to those of us who are in the church. There are, of course, warnings elsewhere in the Bible for those who have failed to pursue God throughout their lives. But the concern of the preacher here in Hebrews is to issue a stark warning to those of us in the church of the danger of giving up on God. Here in Hebrews 10, the preacher uses a masterful mix of warnings together with promise, the promised rewards for those who persevere in faith, also human examples, all in order to encourage the listeners to seek to persevere. His goal in this passage is to encourage his audience to keep on in the Christian life, to keep on keeping on despite the, the challenges, the obstacles, the discouragements that all of us face. The original audience of this sermon had started well, but were now uh, beginning to flounder and so needed encouragement not to give up. So, so here, in light of that, is our main point today from this sermon, from this, the sermon of the Hebrews, that is that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint, 
and therefore requires a focused perseverance. As we look at the passage that Jeremy read for us, we're going to see that the preacher gives three reasons to keep going in this marathon. First, keep going because of the threat of judgment. Secondly, keep going because of a reminder from the past. And then thirdly, keep going because of the promise of Christ's return. Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint, and therefore requires a focused perseverance. Let's look then at the preacher's first motivation for us to keep going, which is the the threat of judgment. Look at verses 26 to 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, we'll ask in a moment what the preacher means specifically by sinning deliberately, but first I want just to speak about what he refers to here as a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire. Some of us, if we're honest, really struggle with language like this. We struggle that the God of the Bible could be described as acting in such a way because the God we want to believe in is a God of love not a God of fury, a God of judgment. So people will ask, what kind of loving God would be filled with such wrath? And the answer to that question is that any truly loving person is often filled with wrath and anger. A couple of weeks ago in the Throwback Thursday email, it's from a 2019 sermon on Lamentations 2, and it included these words, that anger is not the opposite of love, Hate is the opposite, and the final form of hate is indifference. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And so along those lines, consider this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, The biblical doctrine of God's wrath is rooted in the doctrine of God as the good, wise, and loving creator who hates, yes, hates, and hates implacably, anything that spoils, defaces, distorts, or damages his beautiful creation, And in particular, anything that does that to his image-bearing creatures. If God does not hate racial prejudice, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not wrathful at child abuse, he is neither good nor loving. If God is not utterly determined to root out from his creation in an act of proper wrath and judgment, the arrogance that allows people to exploit, bomb, bully, and enslave one another, he is neither loving nor good nor wise." Wright is making the point that God's wrath is is not this cranky explosion. It's actually his settled opposition to the cancer of sin that is eating from the inside out, the insides of the human race, a race that he loves with his entire being. And so in that sense, I think we do want the God who gets angry rather than a God who is always kind of just happily smiling no matter what evil is going on. We want the God of justice the God who expresses wrath and fury against evil. But what's surprising for us in this passage is that here in Hebrews 10.26, the preacher focuses on an evil that might not have occurred to us as an evil, but which is perhaps the greatest evil based on what the preacher tells us here. Because the specific cause of God's wrath and judgment and fury that's in focus here is what the preacher calls deliberate sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And for such sinning, he says, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, but only judgment and the consuming fury of fire. Here, first of all, is what the preacher's not saying. He is not saying 
that if you've ever sinned and it wasn't by accident, in the sense that you actually meant to do it, in that sense it was deliberate, that you're in deep trouble. Because if that's the case, then every single one of us is in deep doo-doo right now because we've all sinned deliberately in that manner. Nor is the preacher saying when he mentions that there's no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin, that there's sort of a cap on God's forgiveness, that if we keep sinning deliberately, there will come a point when the effect of Christ's sacrifice runs out for us. And Jesus says to us, you know, I've paid for all your sins up to this point, but I'm not prepared to pay for them anymore. You're on your own now. Now, the preacher's bent over backwards through this sermon to underline and put in bold and highlight to communicate this, that the blood of Jesus covers every sin. It covers every sin. Every sin except the sin of apostasy. Because that's what's in view here. It's the same sin that the preacher warned us against in chapter 6. Again, this, this warning isn't aimed at those at the church outsider, it's at the church insider. And the chances are that if you're here in this building today or you're watching even from home today, that you're more of an insider than an outsider. So it's a warning to us. It's a warning to us of apostasy. Sin of apostasy being the clear, firm, informed, and deliberate rejection of the gospel by those who have already tasted something of its goodness. The preacher knows that such an abandonment of the gospel and of the community of faith called the church is not merely a hypothetical possibility. It's an everyday threat. It's a threat in normal times, and it's certainly a threat during a pandemic when Christians have not been able to meet together as they normally would do. In that sense, the preacher's congregation here is like a, a group of imperiled rock climbers that, who are, are being pulled to the top by, by the rope of faith. But just as they're nearing the top of the rock face, they're weary, they're tired, they've decided, you know, I, I think I'm just going to let go of the rope. And so it's no wonder that the preacher is essentially screaming a warning to them, if you let go, there's no saving you. That is, if God has provided the one and only way of forgiveness and rescue and salvation through the sacrifice of his son, and you reject that unbelievably gracious provision, there's nowhere else to turn. In verses 28 to 29, then, the preacher further explains the seriousness of the situation. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Preacher here is crafting his supporting argument from a sort of lesser to the greater sort of thing, alluding most directly here to a passage earlier, early in Deuteronomy 17. He reminds his listeners of the extreme penalty of death for rejecting God's will in the Old Covenant. But he says as extreme and severe as that was, that's the lesser of the two situations because the greater situation is what he mentions here in verse 29 and introduces with the words, how much more? Namely, here's what's worse, the rejection of the new covenant priest and his offering. That if, as as the preachers already articulated through the book, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant, that the new covenant priest is, is greater than the old ones, 
that the new covenant sacrifice is superior to, in every way to the old covenant sacrifices, then it only stands to reason that those who have rejected the superior workings of God through his son deserve even greater punishment than those who rebelled under the old one. He says, if you've tasted something of God's grace and goodness, and then you've turned away, let me tell you what you've essentially done. Number one, he says, you've spurned the Son of God. You've essentially ground his person into the dirt. Number two, you've attacked his work, profaning the blood of the covenant by which one is sanctified. You know, here's the blood the preacher's been, been telling us about all through this sermon. The blood that has secured our redemption, that's cleansed our consciences, that's removed sin, that's given us access into God's very presence, that's secured the forgiveness of our sins. Those who reject Jesus reject his blood as unclean, tossing it aside as one would throw a menstrual cloth into the garbage. And then thirdly, he says, having rejected the person and work of Christ, You've also rejected the person and work of the Holy Spirit, here described by the preacher as having outraged the Spirit of grace. It's the only time in the New Testament the Spirit is called the Spirit of grace, but what a beautiful and fitting title that is, because it's the Spirit who gives grace and gives grace and grants grants grace as he enlightens our mind, as he seals our hearts for adoption by the Father, as he regenerates us with spiritual life. This Holy Spirit of grace just gives and gives and gives. To outrage the Spirit of grace, therefore, is just this massive act of hubris and and arrogance. Those who reject the blood of Jesus do not merely sin against the Spirit, the preacher says. They insult and despise the Spirit. Well, the warning part of the passage then is rounded out, verses 30 to 31. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Preacher reinforces his assertion concerning the seriousness of the situation by, by quoting here two brief portions of the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's a song that was eloquently delivered, a warning to the people of Israel as it depicted God's judgment towards a faithless people who had turned their backs on God. That in spite of all that he had done for them, they had abandoned him, which had resulted in God's judgment of them. And the relevance of that for the hearers of this sermon could not have been more striking. So the preacher concludes, it is indeed a fearful thing for those who turn their back on God to fall into the hands of this living God. Flip side, of course, and as the preacher has emphasized elsewhere through the sermon, is that for the true believer, there is nothing better than to fall repentantly into the hands of this God, because his hands are indeed our only hope. Well, that brings us then to the preacher's second point, verses 32 to 35. Keep going, he says, because of a reminder from the past. Look at these verses. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." 
These verses provide perhaps the, the clearest description that we get in the sermon about the preacher's original audience and their context, their situation, and a hint of why they were being tempted to turn their backs on Christianity. Because here was a group of believers who seemed to have been Christians for a significant amount of time and had paid a great price for that commitment in the form of severe public persecution and now were growing weary and in danger of abandoning the faith altogether. So it's at this point that the preacher brings up their own past faithfulness as an example of God's work in their lives and as an encouragement to them to demonstrate such faithfulness in the present and into the future. He begins by acknowledging how in the earlier days they had indeed endured a hard struggle with sufferings. The word translated struggle here is worth noting. The Greek word is athlesis, from which we get our word athletic. That helps paint a picture that the, the persecution that these Christians had faced, which seems to have involved expulsion from Rome by the Emperor Claudius in AD 49, that persecution was like a hard-fought athletic contest viewed by a partisan crowd. There was nothing passive in their display, but rather they had showed superb spiritual athleticism as they'd stood their ground. And so the preacher wants them to recall to their minds what they had done as they'd stood their ground. He reminds them of four forms of ill treatment that they had endured. First of all, they'd faced public ridicule and persecution as they'd been made an item of derision and uh, through both verbal and physical abuse. Secondly, even when they'd not been the objects of such abuse, they had felt the pain of identifying with those who were being treated in that way. Thirdly, they demonstrated compassion to their brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison, a compassion that had resulted in practical action as they'd essentially started a prison ministry of visiting their comrades, bringing food and water and clothing, which in the context of first century prisons would have been absolutely essential to their survival. And then fourthly, they resigned themselves to the confiscation of their property. It's not what it says, is it? Just making sure you're still awake there. What does it say? It says they joyfully, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. I mean, that's astounding, isn't it? I wonder how many of us could respond with anything even slightly bordering on joy if we lost all of our possessions. The preacher tells us how they were able to do it. They knew that they had a better possession, an abiding one, that they could hold on lightly to the things of this world because they knew that their earthly possessions don't last forever, but what we will receive in the new heaven and the new earth certainly will. I came across a story this week of, about the funeral of a banker. The banker had chosen as a hymn for his service, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. But there was a misprint in the order of the service so that instead of the line, Land me safe on Canaan's side, the sheet said, Land my safe on Canaan's side. True story, apparently. But the reality is that you can't take your money. And all those things that you might store in a safe, you have to leave behind. But for the Christian, while you can't take the things of earth with you, the things of heaven cannot be taken from you. And these Christians, these were not you know, nominal believers, clearly. They, they knew that and they lived it. Their loss of possessions had not 
prompted them to cry out, you know, we've, we've lost everything, feel sorry for us, but rather we possess a treasure this world cannot take. So that instead of singing dismal songs of victimhood, theirs had been a triumphant hymn of praise. Perhaps something like Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, with that verse, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. And so the preacher's reminding his listeners of their past for two reasons, that they might persevere as a result of being challenged by their own past character. And then secondly, that they might again seek the power of God to sustain them and deliver them just as he had done before. He says, you began so well and I want you to end well, but part of the secret is to remember well. Remember your past. Don't throw away your past confidence. Don't throw away your past boldness, but hold on to that and there will be a great reward. As many of you know, I grew up in the Anglican tradition in Northern Ireland, and yesterday was actually the 40th anniversary of my confirmation on the 27th of March, 1981. I messaged an old friend who was confirmed the same day. He was absolutely stunned that I still remember the date, but then he, he ended up doing a much better job remembering the church that the confirmation took place, and he even remembered the name of the bishop. I could not have told you the name of the bishop. But as much as something like a confirmation is a marker in a Christian life, I think the preacher to the Hebrews would want to encourage me to be looking for more significant signs of God's active work in my life since then, and perhaps, perhaps, particularly in the recent past. And I think he'd encourage all of us to do that. It struck me this week that this coming week might be a, it might be a good and encouraging discipline for each of us to do during Holy Week, to look back over recent months or even years and identify instances, particular instances where your faith and your action demonstrated how God was unmistakably at work in your life at that point. Maybe it would be times when you have stood up to opposition for being a Christian or times where you've persevered and endured through the hardest of circumstances, circumstances that would have knocked most people down, but because of God's sustaining of you and your faith in him, you got through. Or maybe it was when you extended forgiveness to a person in a situation, a forgiveness that could, frankly, only be described as supernatural. Or when you've held on to your possessions with a slightly lighter grip and become exceedingly generous because you know your real home is in heaven. Or maybe it's something completely different, but whatever it might be, such reminders from the past can serve as strong encouragements for us to keep going in the present. That brings us lastly to the preacher's exhortation for his listeners to keep going, thirdly, because of the promise of Christ's return. Look at verses 36 to 39. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The preacher finishes off his exhortation here with a quotation of two more Old Testament texts, 
from Isaiah 26, verse 20, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. His main focus is on the second of those. Because the prophet Habakkuk, who was one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, had received a revelation from God that was frankly shocking. That God was going to judge the people of Judah through the more wicked nation of Babylon. And that's exactly what happened. Babylon took Judah into exile. That was the backdrop to what we were looking at in the book of Daniel in the fall. But alongside this revelation of judgment to come, Habakkuk also received a promise from God that one day the Babylonians themselves would be destroyed and that one day God's faithful people would be saved. How would that salvation be achieved? Habakkuk 3, we're told it would come when God comes. And the preacher takes that prophecy and he reminds us that God has come in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He's come a first time, but he's coming again to complete his mission, to usher in the better and abiding possession mentioned in verse 34. And in the meantime, he says, we have a choice of two ways to live. We can persevere in faith or we can shrink back. We can keep going or we can give up. Habakkuk 2.4 is a verse that's quoted several times by the Apostle Paul in his letters. Each time he quotes it, he emphasizes how we are saved by, by grace through faith, that in the other words, faith is the way into the Christian life. But for the Hebrews preacher, he's reminding us that faith is also the way on in the Christian life. That it's a faith that is a continuing trust in God, clinging to his future promises, even in the most trying of times. It's a faith that keeps on going because of the promise, the sure promise of Christ's return. On Wednesday night at the uh, Theology on Tap men's group uh, down at Braylock, we were discussing chapter six of Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. And in that chapter, many of you have read the book, I know Ortland quotes extensively from a, a lesser known book of John Bunyan's. He's obviously best known for Pilgrim's Progress, but in this book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, which he wrote in 1678. The book was based on John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It's a stunning promise. It's so stunning that we could find it actually hard to believe, and that's kind of what Bunyan thinks about. He imagines the conversation that we might have with Jesus based on this verse, going something like this. Bunyan's quoting the King James Version when he quotes Jesus here. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, says you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against light, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. I've sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. Here's the gentleness of Jesus' heart to sinners like you 
and me, his infinite patience and tenderness towards us, no matter what we've done in the past, is never growing, ti- never growing tired to welcome us into his arms. If we will put our faith in him and persevere in faith in Jesus. But for those, those who give up on Jesus, who in the preacher's word trample underfoot the Son of God, who profane the blood of the covenant, who outrage the spirit of grace, the wrath is real and the warning is real. Perhaps like some in the preacher's congregation, some of us feel tired and discouraged and playing with injuries. And the danger is that we're, we're losing perspective. We've forgotten who we are and where we are, the nature of the event. We simply want to quit. If you lose sight of the goal, you'll, you'll fear that you're merely running ragged rather than running in the great marathon of all time. So what the preacher's telling his congregation, he's telling us, remember that the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint, and it therefore requires a focused perseverance. So keep going. In light of the threat of judgment, keep going, recalling your past. Keep going, looking forward in faith to Jesus' return. Because Jesus will in no wise cast out those who put their faith in him. So keep going. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its encouragement, but also its warning. We pray that we would heed it. We pray that we would never want to fall back, never give up, because we know that you are the means of salvation, of hope, of grace. Help us to keep on keeping on, strengthened by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.